Hey, folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. This podcast is a project of Encuentros Latinx, an LGBTQ plus ministry in the United Church of Christ. I am very excited to bring you today's guest, Amparo Ortiz. Amparo is the author of a young adult fantasy book called Blazerath Games, which is about a Puerto Rican girl who aims to play in an international competition with dragons, and she ends up embroiled in an international conspiracy. It's a very, very good book, and you'll get to hear some of it at the very end of the episode. The sequel, Dragon Blood Ring, is coming out in October, so be sure to look for that. Be sure to pre-order it. Pre-orders are very, very important for authors. In true Puerto Rican fashion, we had a very long conversation, starting with memories of old San Juan and the fan fiction she wrote about the nuns in her Catholic school. And then we went into how much of the real world artists should use for inspiration. If cat person means anything to you, that's what we talk about. If not, you'll just have to listen to find out. We also had a great discussion about religious iconography and grace and forgiveness in the age of social media. And then we brought it all home with a discussion about her current and upcoming work and Latinx identity in Blaze Wrath Games. Find the most comfortable couch at your TT's house because we are not leaving this party for a long, long while. Let's get right into this encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Can you introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? Hello, everyone. My name is Amparo Ortiz. My pronouns are she, her. Amazing. And what country or countries do you and your family come from? I'm from Puerto Rico, and my parents are both from Puerto Rico, but they've both lived in the United States as young children. <laughs> I've mm -hmm. never lived outside of Puerto Rico. I have traveled a lot, but I've always been mm -hmm. here mainly. Cool. And what is a good memory that you have about uh, growing up in Puerto Rico? So many. Like, I know it's strange to say that we're currently trying to survive a pandemic, but mm -hmm. even within this very, very heinous time in our lives, I have had some great memories. I launched my debut novel last year, like a little bit later mm -hmm. in the year, uh, October mm -hmm. 2020. But before that, I feel like being in this country has meant a lot of ups and downs simply because, and this is going to sound really vain, simply because mm -hmm. of the weather. <laughs> so I know that a lot of people love tropical climate. Mm -hmm. because they don't live in tropical climates. So most mm -hmm. of my memories revolve around warmth and they revolve mm -hmm. around being outside, being with my friends, being with my family, or being by myself <laughs> as a very <laughs> brooding teenager, right? Mm -hmm. But for the most part, my memories, the ones that stick out the most as formative or that have led me to who I am today 
they always involve people who like core friendships because they have always helped me notice or understand that I am an artist. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's difficult to see that support, specifically coming from a Latinx community. Mm-hmm. I don't want to generalize, but for the most mm-hmm. part, artistic endeavors aren't entirely supported. And my parents do support that side of me. It's a little bit different for them to conceptualize it fully. But, you mm-hmm. know, once they see a book in your hands, they're like, oh, it's a real thing, you know, or right, they see right. a book cover. They're like, oh, it's a real thing. So my favorite mm-hmm. memories here in Puerto Rico are just me, Old San Juan, which is one of my favorite places. We walk around, we fool around, but we also like wear our hearts on our sleeves and we talk about mm-hmm. our dreams and we talk about mm-hmm. things that we would like to do, things that we would like to accomplish, but seem impossible or improbable. And mm-hmm. there's something magical about being at night, wandering around the streets of Old San Juan that mm-hmm. feel to me like it's peak Puerto Rican <laughs> behavior. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you can see a lot of people in other parts of this country, just like the beaches or just cobblestone streets elsewhere. But, or they maybe they go to like a museum and hang out there. They go to a mall and hang out at the mall, which are kind of normal, common experiences throughout the world or around the world. But in my case, there's something very specific about walking Old San Juan or even just knowing that you're going to old san juan it's kind of a magical mm-hmm. experience for me mm-hmm. like let's bear our souls to each other it's just really <laughs> it's strange but it's essentially what i love the most about being here <laughs> yeah i i haven't been to old san juan in a couple of trips oh, to okay Puerto Rico. so it's been it's been a while since i've last been there but i it, it is such a different vibe because it's so yes <laughs> it's so old I mean not to yeah it's so old I'm, I mean I, I'm, I'm a I'm a writer I have words yeah um, we, we have words in our brains <laughs> but just the the hills are so steep like that like that's one thing that just they really are. stands out in my mind it's like it's just this up and down really dramatic um landscape yeah or cityscape and i mean most buildings in puerto rico are colorful like people's houses and things like that more so than in the united states for sure but old san juan is like everything is colorful all the buildings are colorful um and so it it does feel like a special place to to go there um so being that you know you are born and raised in Puerto Puerto Rico, I can speak. (laughs) Yes. Um, And what is your sort of experience of Latinx identity and just like that term? Um, Because it has such a complex, you know, development and, and usage. And so what is your experience of that terminology? It's interesting because it's it's a loaded question and it's also like a very mm-hmm. simple to answer question at the same time. Right. Historically right. speaking, Puerto Rico is a U.S. colony and it's interesting to talk to people who are diaspora, whether they were mm-hmm. born and raised in the United States or they've lived in Puerto Rico and then they left as adults or as mm-hmm. teenagers. 
because their family moved away or they choose to move away for work or other reasons. I feel like mm -hmm. being a Puerto Rican who has never lived outside of Puerto Rico is mm -hmm. a case in itself and diaspora is a case in itself. So for me as mm -hmm. someone who's always lived here, being Latina for me has meant speaking Spanish as my first language, historically, mm -hmm. culturally, but at the same time mm -hmm. not. But it, mm -hmm. the language itself is not what makes it so complex. It's everything tied to that language because it is mm -hmm. very much for me a war of the worlds because you want to feel like you belong in your own community and you have things to discuss with other people here, whether it's politics or anything revolving around even what your family thinks of you, what your family thinks of your choices, those things, you know, it's tied to language in the sense that, well, we talk in Spanish or we speak in Spanish, but some of us mm -hmm. think in English. And that's my mm -hmm. main problem. Like I can speak in Spanish. It's my first language in terms of where I was born. Mm -hmm. But in terms of how I express myself, sometimes it does get really, I feel guilty. So I feel like my identity has been mm -hmm. laced with guilt throughout mm -hmm. my entire life <laughs> because mm -hmm. I learned English first in the sense that I interacted with English more. And then once mm -hmm. I got to kindergarten, I was able to communicate with people my age in Spanish. Mm -hmm. I would mostly just communicate with my parents and my little brother in Spanish but not enough, I would always mm -hmm. speak in English. So my identity is associated with guilt in the sense that I don't feel like I am as self-aware as I should be. I am as tied to my culture as I should be. But at the same time, mm -hmm. my culture is an amalgamant. Is that what I'm saying? Amalgam? I don't know, how, um, like a uh, collection? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're both. No, like I know, stopped. I know this word. Um, um. <laughs> like a collection of yeah. different experiences that not necessarily, you know, I didn't have a choice in them. I was born mm -hmm. in a country where we have a very, I want to say the word interesting history with two empires, being Spain mm -hmm. and U.S. These mm -hmm. empires, and so it's interesting because we, I personally don't feel that connection to Spain. I do feel a connection in terms of the pop culture aspects and the language mm -hmm. with the US and that's it. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like the rest of my identity outside of what language and pop culture are, I feel like I have spent most of my life wondering whether I fit in at all with certain mm -hmm. communities or not communities, certain groups of people, because mm -hmm. most people that I hang out with nowadays as an adult are the one or not hang out we're in a pandemic but mm -hmm. the people that I interact <laughs> with and that are my friends right. those are right. the people that I have spent my entire life searching for and waiting mm -hmm. for I feel like I mm -hmm. finally found the people that I was meant to be friends with and it's mm -hmm. taken that long because I grew up in a very small town in the northeastern coast of Puerto Rico which is where I still mm -hmm. live I actually mm -hmm. went to private school all my life. And then by 10th grade, I moved to a public school. But the community was similar. Like in the public, in the private school sphere, you would see a lot of elitism. You would see a lot of favoritism and colorism. And then mm -hmm. in the public school system, you would see a lot of like elbowing away people who 
didn't necessarily live like you. Like there's a lot of contests in that sense of like, I've lived a harder life than you. Like prove yourself. Mm -hmm. Why should I, why should I pay attention Mm -hmm. to you? And it's Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a teenager who thinks, you know, movies and books are cool. It's really hard. (laughs) And theater, I was a theater geek in, I was in drama Mm -hmm. uh, for 10th and 11th grades. So it was really hard because people were very interested in partying and people were very interested in just having a social life. And I was very much interested mm-hmm. in just being an introvert, hanging out right. with myself <laughs> and my dog. So it took me a long time to get to the point where I found the people that I was supposed to be around and just accepting myself for who I was as well. And that's mm. where those conversations and those beautiful memories of Old San Juan come up because it was through those friendships that I realized who I was. And none of my friends, now that I think about it, well, actually, like very few of my friends are also artists in the sense that they mm. either illustrate or they write or they play music, they write music, etc. But most of my friends are like psychologists and lawyers. So it's just like really weird to conflate everything with each other. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I feel like it's it's been a long journey. But my identity has always shifted and I've always mm-hmm. resisted a lot about it. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, like if some someone is like, oh, you're not Latina enough, you have to prove yourself. I'm like, I don't have to prove anything right. to you. But <laughs> growing up, I did feel like I was left out of a lot and like, conversations references weren't hitting in my head they were like not I wasn't understanding everything like expressions Mm -hmm. like our refrains or the idioms the idiomatic expressions Mm -hmm. here sometimes I would be like I have no idea you just said so Mm -hmm. language always comes back to identity for me but Mm -hmm. yeah it's mainly that yeah that's that's so interesting to me um to hear you share that because I feel like well number one the are you Latinx enough litmus test? You know, it's, it's real, it's really pervasive. And it's, it's something that like I internalize a lot and I use that to invalidate myself for That's a, a lot, of, a lot of my life. Yeah. And, but it's so interesting because within that framework that I feel like I internalized somebody like you who is born and raised there and and you speak English and Spanish like you pass the litmus test you know so to speak so it's just very it's right right like we're you know being quote unquote right here um so it's but it's just very interesting that like you know even even you felt this sense of like not being enough and and I think that just points to how ridiculous that whole attitude even is and how, um, you know, you mentioned guilt as being a a major thing that, that you deal with. And I think so many of us, um, deal with guilt, especially around language that we know or don't know, um, history that, I, I mean, I, I find myself like every time I learn a new thing about Puerto Rico, or history or like a language or a religious practice or whatever. I'm like, I'm really glad that I know this, but also (laughs) I feel so bad that I'm a grown adult and I didn't have exposure to this. And it feel it's, it's like feels fake that I'm like going, (laughs) right. (laughs) That that I like, you know, and 
connecting with it, what, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And, and it feels like even if I go and I learn, do a deep dive into X, Y, Z that I find out about that, it's still like not valid because my, it wasn't part of my formative years. Right. Um, and that's such a, I don't know if anybody else like gets that way about identity where it feels like the, the things that happen in your formative years, um, or the, the places you are, the whatever, um, seem to lend credibility with like what you can claim or not claim. Yeah. I don't know if that's, if that's just me that thinks that sometimes that's an attitude that either we like consciously or unconsciously adopt, or if that's like more widespread, but it's like, it's almost like as an adult figuring stuff out, it it almost like feels fake if you're going to try to reconnect with something, although it shouldn't feel that way. You You should be able to reconnect with anything at any age, but I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Do you think that's a thing or am I just like making stuff up? (laughs) No, I mean, we make stuff up as writers, but that's not a made up thing at all. And I feel like it's interesting. (laughs) You say, oh, you pass a litmus test and you still feel this way. Like that's, Mm -hmm. you know, or when you're trying to identify or pinpoint where am I lacking? And then you have to realize who am I lacking to? Like, am Mm -hmm. I lacking to the people at large, as we say, like the community at large, or am mm-hmm. I lacking to myself? Am I lacking to my mm-hmm. parents? Am I lacking to my siblings, my partners, my or my partner, mm-hmm. my friends? Who am I lacking to? To the institutions, mm-hmm. the the academic institutions, or whatever it is that is the governing powers that be, right? So I feel mm-hmm. like there's so much that you can ask yourself, and you will always find something that is lacking about yourself right. if you're comparing right. at all times. But there's no way to stop comparing. You always have mm-hmm. to say, okay, well, this person is this and they've accomplished this or they know this. They're great mm-hmm. at that. Like, those are things that we're aware of. We can't shut mm-hmm. that off. So I feel like it's interesting to, to have to think about the ways in which we alienate ourselves and others alienate, alienate us. So mm-hmm. it's it's a constant battle between what is accepted and what is not accepted mm-hmm. but within our own minds and within our own sense of mental peace and spiritual mm-hmm. peace <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's hard because you mm-hmm. me personally I feel like I'm a teacher I'm an ESL college professor so sometimes my students will be like if they they're meeting me for the first time they'll be like oh professor are you American and I'm like mm. I mean we're all <laughs> Latin American um right but what do you mean? Do you mean I'm from the state? Am I from the United States? And they're like, yes. I'm like, why? And I'm like, and they're like, oh, because you speak English like an American. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't know what that means because Americans speak English in a myriad of ways. And also they associate accents with Mm -hmm. knowledge or with mastery, Mm -hmm. I should say. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I always have to be like aware of that not everyone is going to understand my sense of humor. I know we were talking about this Mm -hmm. earlier. Not everyone is going to understand my sense of humor. They're not going to understand what I write sometimes, what I text Mm -hmm. sometimes. And it's interesting that those differences will happen regardless of language. But at the same time, the experiences that everyone has direct access to inform how they understand certain things about you as a person. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they don't mean ill. They don't really Mm -hmm. mean to be ignorant of your particular experiences 
but I'm, mm-hmm. for example, I always, I'm, I feel like I'm an empath. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like I want to know the lives of everyone around me. I ask a lot mm-hmm. of questions. I'm always listening. So it's just like, it's natural for me to know about others. But then when it comes to me connecting with them in a sense that, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's where it gets a little bit trickier because I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I fully respect what you're talking about because I don't know that part of Puerto Rico or I don't, I'm not familiar with these specific experiences, but we're all Mm -hmm. Puerto Rican. You know, we're all living in the same country or we're all under the same banner, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. (laughs) So what experiences do you have with spirituality or religion? What were the traditions or institutions that maybe shaped you as a young person? And then how have you grown or shifted spiritually or religiously? Well, that's really interesting for me because I know I spoke about guilt earlier when it comes to me being like, oh, I don't feel Puerto Rican enough. Um, But I feel like I personally grew up secular. But when Mm -hmm. I went into, I think it was first grade, my kindergarten was like a public school, but my kinder, I'm sorry, my first grade was a private school that was Catholic. So mm-hmm. in that specific year, it meant nuns and just mm-hmm. like highly monitored at all times kind of mm-hmm. learning. So mm-hmm. it was interesting because we did have a dress code. We have uniforms here in Puerto Rico for the most part. Mm-hmm. I know that in the United States, There's a big difference for me because when you look at television shows, for example, or movies, you see high schools without uniforms, like public high schools without uniforms. But here in Puerto Rico, Mm -hmm. even public schools have uniforms. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting for me, like that's one difference, right? And then Mm -hmm. when you're going into the private school sphere, you see way more restrictions when it comes to dressing these uniforms up. And so I always grew anxious growing up, specifically in my middle school years, because that's when I realized that, oh, boys aren't that bad. (laughs) I kind (laughs) of like them. (laughs) I mean, I always knew that boys were okay, but not to the point Mm -hmm. where I was like, I see my future with this random person that just walked in front of me and I've never, I'm never going to speak to them again. So middle (laughs) school was an interesting time in my life because as someone who was raised Catholic, but not at home. I was raised Catholic Mm -hmm. in school. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes when I encounter now to this day as an adult, when I encounter people who or speak to people who are not Catholic, but they're not necessarily part of any other religion that I would consider completely different from Catholicism, Mm -hmm. I am in shock hearing their experiences because I'm like, that is not how I grew up at all and that is not how I was like raised to honor God and honor myself Mm -hmm. because those Mm -hmm. were two very different distinctions in my head like I'm happy Mm -hmm. but is God happy (laughs) so I feel like that was the main question growing up I'm like I believe in God and to this day I do believe in God I don't go to church I don't specifically belong to the Catholic Church anymore but I don't necessarily belong to any other church but I am Mm -hmm. a spiritual person so I, feel, I pray every day, for example, but mm-hmm. I know people who have stayed within the Catholic Church 
and are very much progressive. They don't abide by all the rules, Mm -hmm. but they go to church on Sunday. They do all of the things that mark them as Catholics. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because they know that they're not being fully accepted and they Mm -hmm. still attend service and they still try to be as participative as possible. Mm-hmm. And so in my case, as I was growing up, I, in elementary school specifically, I grew up thinking that the Ten Commandments were actual law. I mm-hmm. grew up thinking that certain things about specific saints or specific figures within the Bible were actual, mm-hmm. like, faithful historical documentation. And mm-hmm. of course, everything is up for interpretation. And I didn't really understand that until I was much older. Of course, Mm -hmm. you have things that truly happened and that were documented. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, it baffles me how people will reinterpret things to fit what they believe is the truth. And I Mm -hmm. saw a lot of that growing up. I saw a lot of abuse of power from our teachers, from my peers, just a lot of discrimination specifically Mm -hmm. towards members of our, or not members, but classmates that were maybe Mm -hmm. just not entirely believing what they were being told and what they Mm -hmm. were being raised to believe. So Mm -hmm. it was a very stressful time in my life, elementary school and middle school, Mm -hmm. just because I was always aware that we were being watched. And I was always Mm -hmm. aware that we were, we had to behave in a specific way you're a lady, you have to carry yourself with respect, you don't say curse Mm -hmm. words, you don't flip anyone off, (laughs) which is my instinct all the time. And now you do all those things. So (laughs) it's like, well, the Catholic Church failed me. (laughs) So I feel like just the way that and I, I, I notice a trend in this specific conversation, it all comes back to language. Mm-hmm. I am a very expressive person in Spanish. In English, I tend to have a, a little bit more of a straightforward kind of expressing way of expressing myself. But in Spanish, mm-hmm. I can kind of go in circles. And mm-hmm. usually I don't express myself in like as I intend immediately, because I'm mm-hmm. thinking a lot. And mm-hmm. that's kind of a result or a product of growing up mm-hmm. in that specific environment. And then to get, you know, slut shamed by your peers. I wasn't personally yeah. slut shamed, but I saw that so much. Like, mm-hmm. if I am bothered by misogyny, specifically coming from cis men or cis boys, it infuriates me even more to see other people support it and other people mm-hmm. reenact things that should never be repeated or say things that should never be said believe things mm-hmm. that should be believed hate in general so mm-hmm. so but also it's not just the church itself it's the fact that i come from a very small town and these are people mm-hmm. who are not forward thinking they're not mm-hmm. looking to make the world a better place they're looking to make the world or keep the world the way it is because it benefits mm-hmm. them so it mm-hmm. was just coupled with that and then when mm-hmm. i left my middle school to go to high school as a public school so there was no pressure in terms of I never felt like I was being watched although my father was a teacher at the same school so I Mm -hmm. did know that I was gonna technically be watched but not to Mm -hmm. the same degree that says a lot when you know your father is not gonna be that 
aware of what you're doing, but the nuns are. <laughs> it's like the nuns are always watching. But oh, the nuns know everything. The nuns know everything. I mean, honestly, I envy that ability to be like a hawk, you know? But also, I just feel like there were a lot of... Oh, and sometimes I would pass the time when I was bored with my friends. I would write what what I call it now, fan fiction. Like, of yes. the lives of our, of our teachers or, like, the nuns who lived in the school. Like, fan fiction before they became nuns who were like, I wonder what their lives were like. Because they were very private people. They would never, like, say much about themselves. We didn't really get to know them that well. And then it was just like, mm-hmm. well, I wonder who she was before. And we would make up these ridiculous outlandish stories about adventures, like mortar type adventures, like Lord of the Rings type stuff. And I guess I should have known by then that I was meant to write. But I was just, I attributed that to being bored. I was like, well, I'm just, mm-hmm. I don't want to be here right now. <laughs> I hate math. Let's pretend <laughs> my teacher slays dragons you know and I'm like that's a more interesting life than what what I'm currently living through so ah that is completely relatable and now (laughs) I am I'm just I'm just taken with this idea of (laughs) Of the the dragon slaying non-fanfic non-fanfiction and just well well, because the whole because the whole cat person thing I mean you've you've seen that have you seen that going around on Twitter yes I read that I'm like I'm sad about that actually I, yeah, I, um, okay, now people, yeah, yeah, now I'll set the context so that people can yes. understand what, what we're talking about. Um, basically, there was this short story that was published in The New Yorker in 2017, and it was um, published at the height of the Me Too movement, like that was really, um, you know, coming into consciousness at that time, yeah, and so this short story was about a 20 year old woman who gets into a relationship with like a 34 year old man. And it mostly, um, it mostly describes their sex life. Uh, but then the, some of the details about the main character, the property, such as the, yeah, the small town live. that she lives in the college she went to, uh, the, the movie theater that she worked in turns out the author of the short story lifted that lifted those details from an actual person that like both of these two women like separately at different times were in a relationship with the same man who is based who is the real life version of the man in the short story that was published and so I guess a few days ago, this essay got published and I don't remember offhand the magazine, but I I read the essay and it was the real person who read this short story and said, these really specific, weird, random details of my life are in this story. And I don't know this author, like what's going on. (laughs) And then eventually um, she finds out that the author, like, that they kind of knew each other, but not knew each other directly, but through like a mutual connection through this guy, this man, and that the author had like found the girl, the um, woman's social media or, or cert like searched through or picked up enough of this woman's life. So where to where like other people were like, were like, uh, is this you? Yeah. 
That's like not in the funny part. Twitter way, is this you? But like in the actual, <laughs> like, uh, are you? Um, Didn't you do and this? basically, it's it's raising it's raising this huge conversation about just um, the the ethics right. of authors doing the whole verisimilitude thing. Yeah, um, and it's sparking a lot of concerns about you know how much authors actually pull yeah. from real life and. I mean, I can't speak for anyone but myself. Like for me personally, I really don't base a lot of characters or, or situations off of real things. <laughs> Even my my longer contemporary stuff still has enough of a speculative element where it's like I'm. I feel like I'm writing, you know, an altern at least at the very least an alternative world of our own and not like truly uh, this this world. But then it's a cliche because people who are not writers or authors, I'll be like, yeah, I'm, I'm an author. And you'll get that joke of like, yeah, are you going to base a character off of me? Like, book. I, yeah. Yeah. It's like, I feel, <laughs> I feel like, and I, part of my reaction to that is, you know, I, I, I almost want to say that it's an overblown stereotype of like, pe people think that authors just put real people in their books all, all the, the time. time. Yeah. And, and I want to say that that's really not what happens most of the time. But then, you know, this, and then this, this happens. Yeah, this situation occurs. And I'm like, I, I still don't really think it happens as often as people are now worried that it does mm -hmm. because of this situation. But um, also, it's so just I guess it's a good thing that you never published your, your fanfic <laughs> My about nuns fanfic. because they would have found <laughs> out. Like, oh, no, this girl is problematic. We knew it. <laughs> But I feel like in that specific case, it just, mm -hmm. it's, it's problematic for a lot of reasons, but mostly mm -hmm. when the term inspiration means mm -hmm. to be literally take something from something else and turn it mm -hmm. into something that feels new or like you're mm -hmm. creating something based on something else. But what this person mm -hmm. is doing is actually copying, which is not inspiring right. you know or being right. inspired by so i feel like right. the laziness is just really evident and also mm -hmm. there's an obsessive quality to it that i feel like mm -hmm. people tend to romanticize a lot of problematic behavior whether it's mm -hmm. in fiction or in art in general um mm -hmm. so i feel like saying it's very good that you say it like that though you're like oh this is happening because people will be like well isn't that what authors do but then it's like, no, right. that's not what authors do, actually. Right. <laughs> that's not what we're supposed to do. <laughs> we're just right. supposed to like transform reality into our version of the truth. But it's not mm -hmm. supposed to make someone else the focal point when they exist. And mm -hmm. they used to date someone you also dated. I mean, I right. don't know about you, Taylor. I personally <laughs> have no interest in anyone who's ever dated someone I dated, you know, it's like, what is going on? I don't understand. This is weird. Yeah. I, I mean, aside from the cliche that lesbians are all friends with our exes. Um, <laughs> right. Right. You know, I, I don't, I don't associate with anybody. I don't associate that with I've them. Been, <laughs> I, I, I don't associate with, with anybody that I used to know as right. the Gote song right. tells us. Oh, I mean, wow. Wow. And it's, and it's not, it's, it's not even necessarily like, because something bad happened. It's, it's just that we lose touch. I mean, I say that, but then there are like a couple of people who are genuinely like cool and I'm still right. connected with them on social media or whatever. Yeah. And that's fine. And, but 
then there are most individuals um most if, humans, if it's been like one it's if it's been like one or two tinder dates or okay cupid dates right it's not like i'm always i'm usually open to being friends with somebody it, it really takes a lot for somebody to um cross my boundaries right. enough to be like i truly don't want to associate with same. you um absolutely but but i would never i would never base a character or like a plot <laughs> entirely off of even my most wildest uh experience that i that i've had with with dating in terms of a person who is truly very toxic i'm not going to put that person directly in a book or that experience like beat for beat in a book or a story yeah mostly because i don't want to relive it in that way right you know so to speak but also because just as a human being i still don't want or need that person years from now like assuming that i become very famous and everybody's paying attention you know to my work you know i don't need that person to read something and be like oh like yeah she put me in there so she was really thinking about me a lot and so maybe I should go text her like right I mean <laughs> or or in this case too or like you know somebody who's just an innocent random person you know feels exactly. like their their specific life was just just copied and lifted and, and you know here here's the thing like this author didn't some of the easiest details to change, like the the place that she worked at and the like the hometown, like these things that really don't take that much effort to change weren't right. changed. And I don't want to be like, I don't want to sound like elitist or anything or, or say that, um, you know, in order to be a writer or an author, you should have formal education. But I feel like I, I got my undergrad degree in English with a concentration on creative writing. And so in, in a more like formal academic institution, I was taking writing courses. And even but even aside from that, like I was still paying attention to everything on the internet and like blog posts and just industry stuff. And it's like, this is 101. This is author ethics yeah. 101. Like this, if if this person, this author, I think, was she in an MFA program? I, I don't <laughs> I don't want to mix up the details. <laughs> I don't want to mix up the details and like say the wrong thing. But just even if you take like a writing workshop from from like a random what whatever, like this is still a very basic topic that's covered in terms of like, you don't copy beat for beat every single detail of somebody's life. What you do is you take the hometown one person is from and <laughs> your mom's favorite food and your your best friend from middle school is like, you know, yeah. the time in third grade that she ate a roly poly and you put that, oh, wow. you put that together. Yes. Yeah. Like, and then I think it's because a lot and then of that's people, like a new person. I think, yeah, yeah. I think it's a, a lot of people are really like very much, relating to artists like Olivia Rodrigo, like Taylor Swift, you know, Ed Sheeran, mm -hmm. they all have biographical work, but it's mm -hmm. different because they're talking about themselves. And mm -hmm. in this case, you're talking about someone you don't even know. Like, it's so creepy right. to me. Say like if I find right. out that someone is writing a book about my life, first of all, my life is not that interesting. So <laughs> the fact that you've been checking my Instagram or like whatever it is, I'm like, Mm -hmm. that's that's weird isn't it weird like <laughs> that's weird <laughs> yeah it's so 
anyway, that's uh, <laughs> that's the book Twitter discourse yes. for this for week. This but week. <laughs> you know, by the time by the time this comes out, there are going to be like five more things. Yes. That, yes. that have happened. It's like it's it's an ongoing debate machine, and mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> But I will talk about yeah. my nun slash fiction or not slash fan fiction yes. so that people yes, are yes. like weighing, weighing in on like, should I write this for the, <laughs> like this fantasy, high fantasy of like a nun slaying dragons for no reason. Honestly, no reason to slay a dragon. Oh but yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. See here. See, here's the thing you said, you said nuns and you said dragons and, <laughs> um, and now I'm wondering if there's going to be like a, like a sequel series to to Blaze Wrath <laughs> no. that is nuns. <laughs> I mean, um, I love Grave Mercy, the Grave Mercy books. Um, they have like a, an official name. The series has an official name, but it's um, Grave Mercy is the first book, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, they are like 18th century or 17th. Am I mixing up the centuries? I probably am, but they're like killer nuns. <laughs> There's a young adult fantasy, okay. and they're like, I say uh-huh. killer nuns, and it sounds like a horror movie, like a B B movie, but it's it's like uh-huh. a convent, and they are trained in different mm-hmm. homicidal arts, and so some of them are spies, but okay. they master how to murder someone with poison, for example, or others are like they wield daggers okay. and such. They're so great. Like they're great books <laughs> and it doesn't feel comical at all. Or like, Oh, it's just like, but it's just, I love those books. So yeah. <laughs> I just, I just wrote that down to, to no dragons read it because that, no dragons, but that sounds well, that, that kind of thing sounds exactly up my alley because as much of like a, religion and theology nerd as I am I also love that like this type of stuff that seems on the surface like it could be sacrilegious um I'm not you know I'm not like I'm not afraid I actually took a really great course in college about iconography um, and it was like the the history of Christian iconography and that's always been something really interesting for me as well because I listened to heavy metal growing up and mm-hmm. I have always been very curious about, you know, people who are against using iconography in mm-hmm. ways that feel like it is sacrilegious. And mm-hmm. specifically when it is used as a tool for rebellion in these mm-hmm. aesthetically focused or driven vehicles. Mm-hmm. And so it's mm-hmm. just, it's interesting because I've always been like, I've always wondered like, this is clearly not what the Bible was intended to do or the cross or right. whatever other right. instrument. Right. So I feel like it's interesting mm-hmm. to have those conversations. It's like, how far is too mm-hmm. far for you specifically? Mm-hmm. And how far is too far for you? And cause you have a lot of metal fans or metal listeners, casual metal right. listeners who are very religious. Right. And it's just like, mm-hmm. there's even Christian metal or like Christian rock. Yes. So absolutely. It's interesting yeah. to see how, everything gets reinterpreted everything gets reclaimed mm-hmm. somehow and it's mm-hmm. it's fascinating it's a fascinating subject to me yeah yeah iconography is it, it really is um truly very rich and and interesting and i think that the reaction to anything that looks like it's sacrilegious or or mocking christ or god or um you know or any other figure within 
within Christianity, because this issue is different for other faiths. And I just want to, you know, I don't want to make it seem like I'm speaking for, um, for all faiths, but within, within Christianity, I actually think that by not being afraid or not recoiling against imagery that seems sacrilegious, we can actually um, find and experience more profound theological truths and realities. Yeah. Um, for example, there was um, I actually agree. Yeah. There, yeah. There was there was some uh, there was some fan art that I found many years ago of um, Adventure Time, oh, but it was wow. but it was. So the, these pieces of fan art, they're really cool because one of them is the the painting, the creation of Adam, except it's um, in the place of Adam, it's lemon grab in the place of of God, it's Princess Bubblegum. And oh. then all the like they re, they recreated the actual painting, right. but made it all Adventure Time characters. <laughs> and so, <laughs> OK, <laughs> which which is. So there's the surface level of it, which is like, this is hilarious. Yeah. And it's it, it's making it's making a parody. But at the same time, in the show, Princess Bubblegum literally created Lemon Grab, and he does have this crisis of like, "Why did you make me? I am suffering." <laughs> and so, it's funny, actually. <laughs> it, it it is, but also at the same time, it's very profound, and and it highlights the way that humanity relates to, you know, in Christianity, we're like God created us, and yet there's so much suffering that we deal with there's so much um there's so much brokenness that we have within us and so i wrote like an entire essay about this that's amazing was the artist was the artist of this fan art piece like trying to be this theologically deep about it i don't know but the the point is that this type of fan art it it can seem like it's making a mockery of, of things and and i can imagine a more a more conservative, traditional uh, Christian viewer of the art piece having that reaction and recoiling it and just like you know sh- shoving it aside, yeah, being very critical uh, of it instantly after, yeah, instantly after seeing it, and as opposed to sitting with it, see- right. sitting with seeing that image for a few minute- minutes and then having a a greater understanding. Um, granted, I I do think that like I I'm not like a horror movie person at all. And, um, and so it's, it's just not my thing. And, um, things that like look gross or scary, like, I don't like feeling scared. And so just like, like for, like for me, like, I'm not going to always engage in that stuff, but, um, but yeah, there absolutely, there absolutely is, uh, like this subset of metal fandom where there are a lot of Christians in it. Um, a lot of, and I think, gosh, I would have to ask one of my friends from, from college, I I went to a Christian college, um, and I know a lot of very interesting people from that. One of my friends, um, is she, she's very, very interesting, but also she's like a really good, a really like hardcore metal fan among lots of other types of music. And she told me once about this one metal band and I, I, I'm forgetting their name, but they started off as like, this like truly like they were literally actually satanist okay and then they were and so they were pulling all this stuff from like catholic liturgy and like twisting it around or whatever but then the the lead singer actually like converted and became like became a christian like he like he did like a 180 and I, I guess it might have been through like engaging in these texts that he was 
using to create his art that he then had this like you know transformation spiritually it just i i don't know the name of the band probably somebody out there does like knows exactly (laughs) what i'm talking about but it it's just it's just really really interesting And, and there definitely is like this also this reaction within a more like traditional christianity of like oh metal music especially is so bad and and so um you know but then you know you have you have bands like uh like showbread which they're not they're not metal they're like post-hardcore but they're if you like screaming if you like (laughs) if you like guys that are screaming (laughs) and uh yeah yeah uh um but uh it's it's just there there is for every like way that Christianity has been strict and has tried to impose these limits on art and artistic expression, there are always, there's always like a, a subculture, even within Christianity, that's like, no, we're going to engage with this. Right. We're actually, we're going to, we're going to totally, um, totally just make this our thing now. And you can always find the, those subsets. And I feel like also in terms of what we're, what you were talking about, the whole belief or stereotype that metal bands are the ones who use this specific imagery just for shock value. Sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, you do have conversations or something will spark a conversation, I should say. And Mm -hmm. what we're trying to find here is the purpose. Like, what is the purpose of what you're doing? Because if it's just for Mm -hmm. shock value, it really adds nothing to the conversation. But Mm -hmm. for example, I have a friend, one of my closest friends is very, very Catholic. And Mm -hmm. she, her favorite group um, is in K-pop, the K-pop world. But one of her Mm -hmm. her favorite group, actually, her her top, her loves, uh, had a comeback or had a video where they mm-hmm. used iconography, religious, specifically Catholic iconography. And mm-hmm. she was, or iconography associated with the Catholic church. And she was just mm-hmm. very upset and she didn't mm-hmm. want to support that specific album or that video. And she mm-hmm. was just like, she was like, do I do this? Do I support them? What, like, what are they trying to tell me with this? Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was an important conversation to have with her because I personally didn't feel like it added much to any conversation, like what they were trying to do. They were mm-hmm. basically just using it to convey a specific message within their albums, their discography, mm-hmm. but it wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. a crit- critique of anything mm-hmm. religious in general or mm-hmm. Catholic specifically. And I feel like it was mainly to highlight something that they were already building throughout their career. And Mm -hmm. she felt really uncomfortable with that. So it was interesting Mm -hmm. to have that conversation with her because I was like, Mm -hmm. in my head, I'm like looking at the video and I'm just like, this is such a great video. But then I'm like talking to her and as someone Mm -hmm. who is very deeply associated with this specific belief system, she was Mm -hmm. very taken aback. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that was, oh yeah, that did happen in the video, you know? Mm -hmm. I didn't really think twice about it, but that's Mm -hmm. just the differences that we can have with the media Mm -hmm. that we consume or the critiques that we have of the media that we consume, those need Mm -hmm. to be open, opened up for discussion Mm -hmm. because if we're always just, and the artists themselves, whether it's through music or any other form of art, if you're doing something just to do it and see how people react to it, you're really not doing much. But if you Mm -hmm. really do want to portray a specific or convey a specific message whether it's of acceptance, rebellion, 
guilt, <laughs> whatever it is that you're trying yeah. to do, oppression, freedom, mm-hmm. whatever it is that you're trying to do, do it with purpose because otherwise, mm-hmm. and as writers, we can also learn that as people mm-hmm. do everything with intent. And even mm-hmm. I know accidents happen and sometimes things go down ways that we didn't intend them to go down. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you need to be at peace with yourself enough to know that you did what you wanted to do in that specific mm-hmm. moment in life, in time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are just things that I've noticed throughout the years. I'm like, the media that mm-hmm. I consume has always had something to say about something. And mm-hmm. mostly it's just romantic love, let's be honest. Yeah. But yeah. Or like relationships <laughs> in general. But um, I learned so much from my students specifically and from mm-hmm. my friends. They consume media that I never even heard of. So it's mm-hmm. interesting for me to be like, oh, I'm still growing as a person. I'm still learning a lot. Mm-hmm. It never stops. And whoever mm-hmm. thinks that they're done with learning or that they don't need to know more about something that they know so much about is incorrect. Mm-hmm. So, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. As, uh, as Socrates said, Oh my gosh, I we're know. getting philosophical <laughs> I, I here. I only know that I, I know, know nothing. nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, for like for real though, when I, um, when I studied philosophy and I, and I studied, uh, Socrates and re- like read that encountered that for the first time, like that really actually did stick with me yeah. as just a vibe and, and an attitude. Um, and, and I think it's, it, it's completely valid. And it's something that, you know, we seem to have lost a little bit in our terminally online culture oh, sure. in terms yeah. of, you know, they're, they're not being uh, grace to grow. Um, right. And it's, of course, you know, you're probably thinking of the same essay that I'm thinking of, and I'll go ahead and set the context. There was there was a really um, a really in depth essay that was uh, published a week or so ago. By, by this yeah. point, uh, by the point of this recording, uh, by the time this comes out, it'll be even longer. But it's it's about um, so the title is something like did did why why did Twitter, did Twitter break, break why, YA. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it's specifically talking about um, or contextualized in the young adult book publishing Twitter space, but also gets into other social media spaces. And it, it raises these bigger ideas of how we interact online and the this moral purity that we expect of authors and other creators yeah. To the point uh, where um, there's no room for people to actually like grow and learn, um, and and to the point where where people feel like they can't, you know, engage or interact or, or be with within within the community. And and again, this it's so interesting to me, like seeing this moral purity because it's a secular moral purity and i'm coming from a context of being very familiar with a like a traditional um evangelical christian type of moral purity and purity culture and it's just wild to me that this that seeing the same energy in this um this secular progressive mindset because because that's where that's where it's coming from and I'm like, I've, I've like talked to my friends about it. I'm like, this feels, it, it feels so weird because I could not imagine when I was a teenager, 
um, there being any sort of crossover between the purity culture that I like yeeted myself into (laughs) um, in, in there. And then, and then what's happening here in terms of like this expectation of knowing all of the right pronouns and identities for every single possibility and knowing the right, you know, never saying anything, you know, wrong or, or problematic. Like I, I can understand that coming from a, like a conservative religious um, context, but seeing it in a space that is theoretically supposed to be more um, like more open and kind of a a reaction or or a rebellion against that type of culture. It's, it's just very, it's very wild to me. (laughs) And it's it's hard to, yeah, it feeds feeds itself. Or it feeds mm-hmm. into itself. It starts. Yeah. It continues. It starts all over again, and then it continues in a mm-hmm. different direction. And you're like, I understand that a lot of things deserve to be called out, and mm-hmm. people Absolutely. need to be accountable for what they do. But sometimes these moral high grounds are just mm-hmm. tactics and tools to harass others, and mm-hmm. it can be for something as simple as saying. I use bookmarks while I read, you know, I don't like turn (laughs) the corner, like the edge of the page. It's like that creates a debate and people just go into Twitter or they go into their accounts and they see, they have so many notifications of people bashing them as a person because they Mm -hmm. don't use bookmarks. You know, that type of stuff is very, very problematic. But when it comes to actually calling out people who have been toxic and poisonous, truly, Mm -hmm. um, or dangerous, then yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But we're Mm -hmm. not really using Twitter for some of the things that should be used for. We're using Mm -hmm. it to feel like we are constantly one-upping others Mm -hmm. and we are the truth. We are the authority. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm in a Tom Cruise sci-fi movie. I am the authority. (laughs) So sorry, I don't know why I mentioned Tom Cruise. (laughs) Well... Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's it's so hard to to like to parse that out because especially when it comes to like authors and creatives making public mistakes and look, some people's public mistakes are worse than other oh, people's. Oh, for public sure, mistakes. and they're easier to blow up into an actual thing. Right, right. But it's it's so hard, I think, for the internet as a whole to to look at somebody who makes makes a mistake and you know ascertain if they are really um, changing or, or doing anything different from that. Number one and number two, um, giving that same person the the space to like do that growth and change. Now, I know most of the things that tend to blow up on publishing Twitter also unfortunately tend to be things where it it's like a, a chronic cycle of behavior where there's, you know, a lot of instances of kind of the same thing over and over again yeah. for for a lot of of years and that does sort of you know, create this expectation that then anybody else who ever 
makes a mistake or says the wrong thing, you know, is exactly like these, these chronic um, perpetual people who don't actually like care about what it is that, that they're doing. Um, And then, you know, applying the same communication method to that chronic, you know, over and over again, person to somebody who didn't say something clearly in their tweet or put something in their book with not enough context, according to the screenshot that was posted by whoever (laughs) is calling it out. Like, exactly. And there's, and there's no, and now all all of my, my church people listening to this are probably maybe feeling very, very lost. So I I will bring this, (laughs) you know, bring, bring this comparison to something that y'all might understand. and, And that's this. Um, this is kind of the equivalent of, you know, you're having your consistory or church council meeting and the entire three hour session is taken over by two or three people arguing very, very intensely about which hymnals to be putting in the pews or, um, what time to start the service. If you, if you do, cause some churches will do like, a like summer hours and they might start, they might do like a seasonal shift. Um, or like think, think, you know, for my, for my church people, my UCC people think of like the really trivial matters that can just dig so deeply into your local congregations and, and cause these very like dramatic, (laughs) dramatic divisions. That's, that's what, that's what a lot of this, um, this, culture online can can sometimes be like and and in those and I I bring that up because I want to get into this concept of grace um and and how we should have more of it in these you know in these progressive spaces that we're that we're in I mean yes a lot of us are um adopting and very like into progressive values because maybe we did come from a very strict you know more conservative and unaccepting type of, of background where you, you know, you might be in a context where people aren't respecting pronouns and they're not, you know, they're, they're not respecting these, these things that, you know, are really about basic human decency. But then, and, and so then, you know, there, there is this level of like, a lot of people have been hurt. And so they, when they see, like anything that is similar to that, because maybe they haven't done enough of their own healing work, like in themselves, then it's really, really hard to have grace and to, and to extend grace. Um, and, and I, this is kind of going back to how this is like a, like a secular progressive phenomenon and not, not that like secular folks don't understand the concept of, of grace, but like me coming from a religious context and talking about grace and forgiveness and the, these things that, you know, are more, uh, prevalent, I guess, or they're, or they're really, really prevalent values in religious contexts. And I'm like, you know, maybe our secular progressivism just needs a dose of, of some of these general, like religious concepts (laughs) and, and, and understandings around what it means to, to have grace and humility and, and forgiveness because for- forgiveness is really widely misunderstood even within Christianity because it has people tend to think that like forgiveness is about 
like pretending that something never happened or like fully getting over something that happened. But it's more it's more nuanced than that. And it's it's more about like moving on from moving on, but not forgetting mm-hmm. that something happened. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people might tend to think of forgiveness as like, it's, it's, it's okay that you like somebody's like, I'm sorry, I did X, Y, Z. And then person B is like, it's okay, I forgive you. Well, maybe it's not okay. Maybe it's not okay, but I forgive you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and it's a personal and, choice. That's like, yeah, if you don't want to forgive someone, right. then you shouldn't. But at the same right. time, if you're not forgiving them, because you intend on being petty, Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's just mm-hmm. it, that is also a problem <laughs> yeah yeah it's and it's just you know that the pettiness that can happen in online spaces too where you know people can dig up things that you wrote 10 years ago when you were a different person <laughs> and 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 say like you know oh explain this and it's like well okay the explanation is that I was you know I was a different person in a different place in my life and you know, is, is there, is there space for that in this, in this online purity culture that we're seeing more and more of sometimes I don't, but also I don't know. Um, I I don't know if that's always present. So yeah, for me, it's uh. mostly just, I would take it case by case. Like Mm -hmm. I take everything case by case. It's like, I'm, Mm -hmm. I do my regular blanket statements. Like I will never write sci-fi because I'm not good enough to write sci-fi. Not because I don't read sci-fi or I don't enjoy it, but I just don't think I could ever successfully master that specific genre. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. That's one example of a blanket statement I make. But other than that, I Mm -hmm. take everything case by case. If the person that I am interacting with right now in terms of like a Twitter call out, is someone mm-hmm. that I genuinely feel is someone that deserves to be listened to and like mm-hmm. given that space to grow and mm-hmm. generally wants to grow and wants to be a better person mm-hmm. than sure. But I, right. even if I accept it, I have to understand mm-hmm. that not everyone, specifically the people that that person harmed, it's right. not my place to be like, Hey, on behalf of them, I'm right, going right, to forgive exactly. you. You know, I choose to yeah. forgive you and that's it because actually that's something right. that's come up a lot uh, this past mm-hmm. week for me in my personal life because I mm-hmm. don't necessarily trust a lot of people I like a lot mm-hmm. of people but I don't necessarily mm-hmm. you're not my friends you know sure. Um, sure but I feel like at the same time I just want what's best from people and or, mm-hmm. I'm sorry for people so I, I right, tend right. to think the best about them and until I don't but it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that I trust them with my life or mm-hmm. my choices or anything and or right. my time but I'm just like I really want you to be a good person prove me wrong and that's my attitude mm-hmm. to meeting people right but in right. terms of like some people that I've never even met and I kind of know from others experiences that they have mm-hmm. been very hurtful mm-hmm. yet they still have the support of a lot of other people I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. I don't care what anyone else tells me. Like, I saw this specific instance. It was an isolated mm-hmm. case, but it was so mm-hmm. damaging that I feel like it could cause some serious hurt to mm-hmm. other people down the line if mm-hmm. this happens to them. And no one is checking you. No one is, like, telling you that this is wrong. That's mm-hmm. – I'm uncomfortable with that. So – but mm-hmm. yeah, for the most part, I completely agree with you. Forgiveness is about understanding what happened, 
and knowing that moving forward with maybe another chance for this person is okay. Cause there's also the forgiveness. That's my personal forgiveness. It's like, I know what you did. I accept what you did. We both learned and grew. I forgive you, but I'd never want to interact with you again. And I have no ill will toward you. I don't want you to do bad things with your life. I don't want bad things to happen to you, but I just don't want to be in your life. So I feel like that's more my jam. (laughs) But a lot of people are like, ah, this person is terrible. They must be stopped at all costs for saying that, you know, they use bookmarks or they don't use bookmarks. Sorry. They like flip the edge of the page and that's it. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Or, or like, or like fold the, um, like fold the cover like on oh a right, 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 right. yeah there's yeah. a lot of discourse yeah. on what how to treat a book right and that's fine i understand that but people are mm-hmm. you know and of course we have to look at privilege privilege is a huge mm-hmm. part of twitter discourse and publishing yeah, twitter yeah. discourse it's how do mm-hmm. we use privilege to our advantage versus how mm-hmm. we have to fight for things that feel like they're favors but for other people they're they're every day so mm-hmm. those are, those are, and it's wonderful that you mentioned like the moral purity aspect of it, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people coming in trying to reclaim spaces that don't belong to them by saying, mm-hmm. you know, I belong here <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. all because everything has been handed to them. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting because you see that in a lot of other spaces. It's not the only industry mm-hmm. where this happens, mm-hmm. but it's the loudest right. I say, I would say in my personal life, it's the loudest because I, I mm-hmm. only teach as, a, as another job, like another mm-hmm. industry that I belong to is education, mm-hmm. although I don't know if I should call mm-hmm. it an industry, just a field. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's interesting how something can be blown up, blown out of proportion mm-hmm. most of the time, but mm-hmm. just used as like to punish others, essentially. Mm-hmm so sad <laughs> yeah it's it's a really it, it's a really tricky space to to enter into because yes. like and and i and i guess i guess too like with your approach to it like what you what you are doing basically is you're having as much context oh, as you I, can yeah i love like, to know before, everything yeah <laughs> yeah like before yeah, all all the cheese. Oh, like, yeah, I'm like, um, wait, what happened? Okay, let me just right. and I just that right, was the right. sound my sound um, effect for like using my phone. <laughs> right, right. But I, I think I think that is, you know, an important guiding principle to try to have in our online spaces when something happens, when when a conversation blows up because some author did a, a problematic thing or, or for my church people, some pastor somewhere did a problematic thing. Yeah. Um, although church, church Twitter is like different <laughs> from, uh, from my Twitter, oh. like UCC people. Um, well, UCC people specifically are only on Twitter during general synod and we have fun oh. in our own little ways there, but um, I, I'm, I'm generalizing, but there, there just aren't like, Christian Twitter is a thing. It, it's, but uh, UCC specifically, like, there doesn't seem to be like a huge, like, Twitter culture, like, constantly ar- around that. But these are conversations that we do have in the UCC, especially at the um, at the national level. Um, we have, you know, workshops a dozen in in General Synod, which is like our every two years 
the whole denomination gathers and um, votes on different resolutions that could be about uh, various social justice issues or like matters about how the church like is structured or operates um, internally. And um, but there are always workshops that are like talking about um, decolonization of, of faith and, um, you know, doing anti-racist work and like, what does it look like? And I, I'm just naming, rattling off workshops that are happening um, that happened in this year's general synod um, talking about like, you know, church so white, yeah. like the, the whiteness of the church. Like in the UCC, these conversations are are happening and, and the work is happening. It's just not on Twitter. Um, but it's, it's equally it's equally tricky to, to step into, um, because it's, it's just super, it can be super loaded and it can be super uncomfortable. And one thing that we always talk about, um, in the UCC when we're doing like racial justice work is, um, like having, having the grace and humility to sort of be comfortable with the discomfort. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, you know, I, I think that the that the church offers the church that has these types of conversations. There's a certain structure that you can have around it, um, and certain values and approaches to entering into conversations, whether it's on Twitter or anywhere else, yeah. that can just kind of ground you in terms of like, okay, you know, can we can we think the best of the person saying? X, Y, Z, maybe, maybe we can a lot more times than we give grace for on Twitter. Right. But then there are also, of course, times when we can't, because there are like bad faith actors. Yeah. But I, I think too, like the, the constant, the constant like defensiveness and, and anger and, and quick to retweet and quote tweet with maybe without reading fully or, or whatever, um, it encourages us to stay in this place of, of rage and, um, and, and anger. And that's not sustainable. Yeah. That, that's not sustainable for anybody's mental health. And so you don't have to, you don't have to feel like you're, you're fighting all the time on social media or, or on Twitter. It doesn't have to be that type of space. Yeah. It shouldn't have to be that type of space. It, it should be, we should be able to sort of like move back a little bit and maybe think about what it is that we want to say. If, if we want to engage with whatever the conversation is, number one, and, and number two, if we have anything helpful to add to it at all, or, or, or if our involvement in the conversation is just going to perpetuate the rage machine yeah um, and it often does so often it's just yeah. like a an ellipsis or like the three mm-hmm. dots after the, the end of the sentence everything mm-hmm. continues it can be recycled it can be transformed to something else but for the most mm-hmm. part you do encounter these specific topics that will always come back and mm-hmm. these specific unethical behaviors within publishing mm-hmm. specifically from literary agents or maybe even people within editorial houses who will mm-hmm. engage in unethical behavior and practices mm-hmm. harming their clients harming potential clients and mm-hmm. that's when it just blows 
up again, <laughs> I guess. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. always going to be yeah. a thing because people are always going to make it a thing. And mm -hmm. it's sad, but at the same time, it's, I don't know. It helps me ground myself. It makes me mm -hmm. even more grateful to know that outside of if I close the app, I have a life, I have things to do. I mm -hmm. have people to share my life with and love and just mm -hmm. be kind to them and accept mm -hmm. their kindness as well. So I feel like mm -hmm. Twitter isn't everything. Social media isn't everything. The vacuum mm -hmm. is simply that a vacuum. Yeah. So it's important yeah. to remember a lot about what grounds you, who you are, what mm -hmm. makes you joyful. Mm -hmm. And in the specific case, like what is something that you want to create for yourself that others can also mm -hmm. enjoy in the specific mm -hmm. case of writers, right? <laughs> it's like, or mm -hmm. artists in general, like what is it right. that you are trying to do because it makes you happy, but also you feel like others will get a fulfillment from it as well. So mm -hmm. it's hard to do, but we can do it. <laughs> we can persevere. Yeah, yeah abs absolutely. And I, I think I, I kind of wish there was more, there was more like digital etiquette. Oh, like if, like if there could be like a, like a class that you take in school, right? <laughs> like you take social studies, you take, right. you History, take math, math, yeah. You take, you know, the, the nuns are teaching you, you know, <laughs> religion. X, X, yeah, y, there's like a whole then, religion then, class. Right. But, but then, but then if there, if there could be more like you in your K-12 school, you have a class that you take that is about, um, sort of in, engaging in online discourse right. in a, in a, in a healthy and productive way. Because I think, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these social media technologies, they're, they're so new and the younger and younger generations compared to even compared to my generation, like it's, it's already here. They don't, they don't have a childhood without these very public ways of expressing themselves. Right. And, and, you know, so any, all of their teenagerness is there for a much more public audience. And so I think that is also part of where this moral purity culture comes from is because you have a lot of young people who are very, they're very well-meaning and they, they are very caring individuals and they want everybody to be loved and respected and valued and they want to be loved and respected and valued themselves. That's so great. But also, you know, there is such concern about saying the wrong thing and believing the wrong thing because everything is so public. Yeah. You know, that it's, it's almost like, I, I wonder if some of these, if some of our, our young people really have this intense fear of making any mistake at all because their whole lives are so public on the internet and there's no, there, there's no space even for them to like be teenagers and, and make mistakes. Yeah, you know, I agree. I think that we are going to be seeing when we're a little bit older, like the adults that are coming in and they're going to be our ages, they're going to have very different experiences with social media. There, there might be even platforms that we have never mm -hmm. heard of because they're going to make them. <laughs> so I feel like it's just, it's going mm -hmm. to evolve in ways that will catch us off guard and will challenge us. But at the same time, we'll feel familiar because these types of situations will always 
arise out of the spaces that are mm-hmm. created essentially to mm-hmm. engage with other people to interact with other people but no one ever mm-hmm. says oh if you're well i mean there are you know twitter for example has really bad yeah. ways of keeping harassment out of the equation but because yeah. i feel like they fail at it mostly so mm-hmm. like if you report a specific tweet or a person they'll sometimes they'll be like this isn't harmful what are you talking about i'm like excuse mm-hmm. me <laughs> so that's not gonna change i don't think mm-hmm. uh hopefully it gets better hopefully there is more safety involved and more fun involved mm-hmm. for everyone but at the same time mm-hmm. i'm not hopeful <laughs> i'm not keeping myself that optimistic well, you know what we can be optimistic about? We can be optimistic about the um, the art and the work that you are creating. And so I, wa- I want to get into sort of like yourself as as a writer. It sounds like you were always writing as a young person. I was not. <laughs> you were not? I wrote one. You were, you, you, just your, your non-fiction? Your non-fiction? Was that, that was, was that it? Well, actually, I did write, but it was poetry and terrible songs like as a middle schooler and high schooler that was it for me when when I was like in the second third grade I wrote my first Mm -hmm. short story and then I wrote like a couple of more short stories as a child but then I stopped writing altogether and when I hit Mm -hmm. ninth grade I started reading like that was when I Mm -hmm. read books for fun for the first time mm-hmm. when I was in ninth grade and, and then I wrote lyrics and poems because oh my god boys and then in my senior year of high school when I was 17 years old I started writing what would eventually be my first novel so mm-hmm. I started at when I was 17 stopped like a month later didn't finish it mm-hmm. until when I was 19 years old already in college I mm-hmm. caught the bug again and I was like, I want to finish mm-hmm. this novel that I never finished. Finished it. It was horrible. <laughs> Still querying it. And of course, did not get any representation from any agent because they were like, well, this is horrible. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm horrible. And then I wrote another book and another book and another book. The third book I queried was the fifth book I finished or completed. Mm-hmm. That was the book mm-hmm. that got me my agent. Uh, mm-hmm. And then that was in twenty. 20- 15 December 2nd 2015 I remember because it was Britney Spears's birthday and (laughs) and then hashtag hashtag free Britney Britney, yes and then I had my first publishing credit in 2018 with my short story comic in the Puerto Rico Strong Anthology which is Mm -hmm. benefiting the country after Hurricane Maria and Mm -hmm. all the funds go to supporting and financing Mm -hmm. the island for materials they sorely need still to this day in 2021 Mm -hmm. and then that was 2018 2019 it won the eisner award for best anthology and oh actually yes in 2018 later on that year i got my very first book deal but that has not actually been announced yet so i can't actually (laughs) say what it's about or anything but just right. to give you an idea of how publishing works, it's very slow. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I got my first ever book deal in 2018. Cut to 2019, and I got my book deal for Blaze Wrath Games, which is mm-hmm. um, a young adult contemporary fantasy about a Puerto Rican girl who wants to compete in the World Cup, but it has dragons. 
and there is a dragon supremacist who wants to cancel the cup. And if his terms aren't met, then he is going to wreak havoc around the world. And so that sold in a duology or two book deal. I also mm -hmm. sold a middle grade graphic novel earlier that year. That's coming out next summer. It's called Saving Chupi, and that is going to be my first book set entirely in Puerto Rico. And it's about a 12-year-old girl named Violeta whose parents are Puerto Rican, or her, whose mother is Puerto Rican. And they come to Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria to help their, their, her grandmother resettle here and like reopen her restaurant. But she mm -hmm. discovers that a chupacabra, a young baby chupacabra, is I don't want to say wreaking havoc again, but wreaking havoc around yeah. the town. And so she has to stop this chupacabra, but at the same time, she discovers that it's not as menacing as she was led to believe. So hmm. that's a really cute, supernatural middle grade that's coming out next year. And mm -hmm. the rest is history. I have a horror anthology that's also coming out next year. And that's all mm -hmm. Latine authors. We're very excited mm -hmm. to share the full official lineup soon. Hopefully with the cover yeah. attached to it <laughs> so that everyone can see <laughs> the names in all one place. Um, mm -hmm. And that's moving along swimmingly. I mean, I revised my short story for that because I have a contribution in it. And it's a short mm -hmm. story that is set entirely in Puerto Rico as well. And it features mm -hmm. one of our many myths, which is El Vampiro de Moca which is mm -hmm. during the 70s, it was believed that a vampire was eating or destroying cattle and also attacking mm -hmm. some of very few humans that swore mm -hmm. that they saw a bat flying at them in the nighttime. So, mm -hmm. and then they were attacked by said bat. So I was like, oh, interesting, <laughs> vampires in Puerto Rico? I'm in. <laughs> so yeah, I have a couple of things that I'm working on as well, but... They are either unsold or unannounced, so gotta mm -hmm. wait. But I'm excited because I feel like I'm at my busiest. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel that busy because everything is like, you have this set of months to work on X, Y, Z, and then this other set of months to do that. Right now I'm doing mm -hmm. a first draft or writing a first draft of a book. That's going to be announced soon. Um, mm -hmm. And then I'm launching the sequel and final book in the Blaze Wrath Kings duology this October which is the book that Taylor mentioned. And it's going to yeah. be exciting to wrap up the story, but at the same time, I'm curious to see um, if I did the story justice and the characters justice. So I feel like it mm -hmm. is a better book than Blaze Wrath Games, but at mm -hmm. the same time, it is so different because Blaze Wrath Games, mm -hmm. to me, is more fun. It has more mm -hmm. lightheartedness in it, mm -hmm. but the Dragon mm -hmm. Blood Ring is less so because it's an exploration of trauma and baggage that has been carried for years mm -hmm. for one of my narrators and i don't mm -hmm. know i just and also it's it's about stopping a death match <laughs> dragons <laughs> trying to like survive because a witch is pitting them against each other to see mm -hmm. which dragon is superior and it's like well this isn't why did i write this book <laughs> again tell me again why i wrote this book but that's essentially my journey i've been writing on and off uh, but then once I turned 17, I took it a little bit more seriously and the rest is mm -hmm. history. Fantastic. And I, <laughs> and I have to say that, um, 
I've mentioned Puerto Rico Strong oh. on this podcast before because I have it and, and I've read it. And it's a very, very good anthology. And I've also mentioned Blaze Wrath Games on this podcast Yay. before because um, – <laughs> Well, because here's one of the things that that I love about this book and why I will again say to all of my listeners, all like 20 or 30 of you um, <laughs> to read to read this book is because I mean, especially if you have like a, a diaspora, ni de aquí, ni de allá kind of experience, right. like yeah. Lana is your girl, <laughs> like she like, uh, That's so sweet. Protect, we, we protect that child. Yes. Um but but no, because like because like when I read it, I mean, not to be like all cat person on you, <laughs> but like when I <laughs> cat person is the name of that story that we were talking about yes. before, where it was like too much based on yes. the real person. I don't I don't know if I mentioned the name before or not. So I yes, just, you did. Yeah. Um, but but no, like I because because I because the first like chapter or so. Lana talks about like, oh, yeah, well, my mom is my mom is American. And my dad's right. American, And I'm like. I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> Except for me, it's opposite. Like it's switched. Oh, so okay. you did not, you did not cat person me. It's it's my mom who's Puerto Rican, my dad who, um, oh, who is not. Okay. And so and so like I definitely like that was like an instant connection. I was like, oh my gosh, I because I I still go into like reading things about Puerto Rico where I'm like. I'm not going to relate to this at all because right. I like, it's still just this internalized thing that I deal with. And then I read the thing and I'm like, I relate to this and this and this and this and this. And, this and oh my gosh, this is so, yeah. um, but, uh, but yeah, like it's, I mean, it's not necessarily a, I, I, Lana does deal with like kind of cultural, um, like cultural anxiety in terms of like not feeling Puerto Rican enough. And I think, for I, I'm glad that that's in there because I think that's the first time that I've read a book with that specific like of an experience of mine reflected oh, in there. Yeah, I don't. I mean, and not to be like like I read a lot on the one hand, but also there's a lot that I haven't read, and so you know Same I don't want to make it seem like I don't want to make it seem like you know this has never ever happened before right, in literature right, ever. Right, right. But um, but I think it just it just does go to show like the importance of representation and I, I'm also somebody who I feel like in a lot of fictional scenarios I can usually find some level of representation in terms of well this character looks like me or this this right. character um you know has has my same like orientation or whatever like but but it's the like it's the Latina like experiences the specific ones that I have that like I've only seen in Elena Alvarez oh, from One Day at a Time right. like oh my gosh she's literally me in an alternate universe like you <laughs> want to talk about like cat personing I'm oh, like someone cat personed uh, me <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh what if cat person becomes like I think, like a verb I think you know what <laughs> like, I'm making it one it's over for me it's like I'm cat personing I would never cat person anyone but I mean no, <laughs> I don't have any intentions of doing that. Oh my gosh. But that's so sweet um, but, of you to say, because I don't relate to her in the sense that I'm not diaspora, but at the same time, I feel mm -hmm. like a lot of her concerns are things that people here in Puerto Rico also have concerns with. It's mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. um, I don't necessarily jive with this particular experience. Mm -hmm. And that's why uh, someone like Victoria, her character for me was so important because she is that pushback. She is that resistance. Mm -hmm. And you don't necessarily see that that wildly accurately portrayed in real life. 
because you know mm-hmm. people will be more of an internal judgment kind of thing <laughs> um mm-hmm. but or maybe if we're talking about twitter that's not an internal at all but i feel like victoria lives on social media like that exactly like that but you know mm-hmm. it's important for me to have her look up at lana and say what are you doing here how do you belong like prove yourself to me and all mm. under the guise of saying, oh, I'm just testing you as an athlete. I'm just trying to see if you're good enough to make help right. our team win in this cup, you know? Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, that, that is such an interesting dynamic. And, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing, like, fully how that plays out oh. in... Um, in Dragon Blood Ring, because you do have you do have Lana and Victoria yes. as a perspective. They're both narrators and, this time around. Yes. Yeah, yes. Which was and, my uh, editor, of course, my former editor's suggestion. They were like, okay. I, I want Victoria to have like her own story." And I'm like, "Well, can mm-hmm. we make it like both Lana and Victoria?" Because mm-hmm. it was supposed <laughs> to be like the way my editor pitched it was like, or they didn't pitch it, but they were like, mm-hmm. "Can it be just a Victoria book?" And I'm like, oh, but I feel like mm-hmm. Lana's story isn't over yet. So mm-hmm. we combine them and I feel like it works. But it's, I mean, I've had people read it and say, wow, they're very different. <laughs> because, you know, Victoria is all raw emotion. and But like mm-hmm. in a cerebral way at the same time. And Lana is mm-hmm. emotion, but in like an angsty, this is mm-hmm. over overwhelming for me kind of way. Whereas Victoria mm-hmm. is like, I am not overwhelmed. I am not consumed by my emotions. I am the master. I'm just angry about having emotions, you know? (laughs) I love that. And also hashtag Lanatoria writes. Um, (laughs) No, when it, when it comes first, first of all, I like, I'm just being completely silly with, with the shipping. I'll, I'll be happy with however you, however you like tell the story. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, but just, just like, just to like, you know, I don't want people to actually like say that you're queer baiting anything at oh, all. Oh, right, um, right, right, right. Yeah. If, you know, like, you know, like by me, by me, like, you know, using <laughs> that, that online hashtag, fandom, yeah. like has, hashtag Lanatoria rights, <laughs> you know, and then cause, cause people throw around the term queer baiting now in contexts that, you know, don't apply. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I do, I do think that at least cause I've only read the first book, obviously um, it's, they do have such like a, like opposite energy. Um, but then like the, the ways, but the ways that they come together though, like it's, it's just, it'll be very interesting to sort of see, like, I I think that's a really good, um, sort of narrative choice to have them both, because I think that creates a lot of tension. If it's not tension between the two of them, then it, you know, tension in, in general. So I think that'll be, really really super interesting to to see and whoever whoever lana ends up with it could be nobody it could be somebody like i'll be i'll be happy because i I tend to be like most of the time like oh cool like the author the creator the the showrunners you know this is the story that they wanted to tell and this is how they this is how things played out and like i'm a i'm a writer like i get it like characters do things and have you know have their own relationships and, and really like I mean, fandom can be fandom, but, um, you know, the, at the end of the day, like we should still, I'm, I'm a little bit old school in that way <laughs> yeah. of the product of my generation that we should still respect, like oh, what sure. the create, what the creator like puts forward in terms of how they're dealing with any shipping or not. Like 
in their books and shipping for my confused church people <laughs> that don't know internet language shipping means that uh you have like two characters and you want them to be in a romantic relationship with each yes. other so like ship the end of relationship and it's just taken to be its own term and it's um there's such beautiful fan art of many yes ships yes and, you know yes we so. stand them all we love them all <laughs> we we stand yes um and and we we stand victoria she sounds like <laughs> I love I love me like a good queen bitch character and like uh, she would love oh to be called gosh. that she would love to be known as that yes see we love that <laughs> yes and I also love that um you you tweeted the other day that the that currently the book uh bloodbath bloodbath oh, that was the right? original I, title yeah or um sorry the, um dragon blood yeah see okay um <laughs> Anyway, the book that you have that's coming out that I know the title of but can't say right now yes. is it has a, a banner on Amazon and it's number one oh, in the um, geography. Is it, is it still? I is checked it still, this morning; it was still there. I'm like, what still, is it okay. doing there? <laughs> it's like number one well, what's, what's in geography about, and Caribbean fiction, I believe it is. It's like what the the, the category name is. Just, it's it's, it's weird, funny to me yeah. how the category is worded because yeah. it's like it's youth and young adult right caribbean geography right and it's not fiction. even like a geography textbook or anything like that <laughs> it's not even set in the caribbean entirely and it's just like you know what i'll take it i don't care <laughs> it's a number one <laughs> i take my yeah, number well, one that, seriously <laughs> yeah well that that just means that you know we just need to be ready for where this story right. is going yes because for so most, it's in the geography section right. it's because we have to it, yeah. it is the kind of that book yeah because in blaze wrath yeah. games we're in we're in florida we start off in naples mm -hmm. florida and then we go to dubai and then we have a little bit of a detour somewhere else but then and we're also in the united states so in mm -hmm. this case or in the united states where we go back to the united states but in this case mm -hmm we are spanning a little bit more yeah the globe is it's expanding mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> wow. i'm so excited wow. yeah and also i i love how um in the sport of blaze wrath the united states just simply doesn't have it right because they don't <laughs> have a dragon yeah. yeah and my logic right. for that is mainly if the united states were to have dragons they would be from the native american communities and I feel mm. because the dragons are very much about originating communities or not originating. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure if that's the correct term, but the, the in, first or people the first, on that or yeah. in that specific territory. So it would not make mm -hmm. sense for a wyvern or like any other European dragon to be part of the United States. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, it would definitely be one of the tribe's dragons. So mm -hmm. I definitely feel like. I have no business writing about that. And mm -hmm. I would love to commission or not commission. I'm not the editorial right. house, but I would love to be right. like, Hey, you know, I would love to like one day do like an anthology of different dragons mm -hmm. that aren't in this world, or maybe they are, but I don't talk about them much or at all. Mm -hmm. So it's like bringing mm -hmm. different authors from different countries or different cultures and writing their own dragons. Mm -hmm. And it's like, mm -hmm. but all set within a world cup. And right. I feel like that's why the specific, there's no, like, it's, it doesn't have a team. So it's like, whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right. Well, that that's super, that's really cool. Um, uh, like a really cool 
idea. It's something that I've thought about too, like how I would like to treat some of my own work is, is like, there's aspects of worlds that I create that, you know, maybe I personally shouldn't be writing, but to like do an expanded universe type of thing. Right. Um, I, I think, yeah, I, I, that sounds, that sounds cool. If if, uh, that anthology were to end up happening. And I, I think that is just a great way to sort of like carry the spirit of what a lot of fandom is about because a lot of fandom and like creation within fandom is this is a more like collaborative experience. Yeah. And then to carry that over into publishing now that it's like less of a taboo to be like, Hey, I'm an author and I used to write fanfic. Like right. <laughs> even, even just a Correct. few, like 10, 10 years ago, like you couldn't ever admit that. Yeah. But, it was very um, taboo. But Tracy Dion, yeah. for example, one of my favorite people and authors, mm-hmm. um, uh, she yeah. is very open about writing fan fiction and she has mm-hmm. studied fan fiction as a scholar. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, mm-hmm. why are we so embarrassed about like, not embarrassed because we are embarrassed ourselves, but because shame mm-hmm. is added or put onto this specific enjoyment or this specific mm-hmm. form of entertainment. Because that's what mm-hmm. fan fiction is. It's derived from other forms of entertainment. It can be other books, mm-hmm. TV shows, songs, like even mm-hmm. real people, like, you know, but not cat person, not not, Which, not like that. Um, yeah, the the real the real person fix. The real get, person that fix get, is that a little, little gray area ish for me. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's interesting. But I'm excited yeah. to like finally share this book because I just feel like it's a stronger work than blazer ass games and i also mm-hmm. just want to know what people the people that have supported blazer ass games since it even before it even came out uh, and are excited to read dragon blood ring i feel like i mm-hmm. owe this book to them because i wrote this book in 2020 like it was really hard to write this book i was burned out but not from work just like emotionally stunted <laughs> and so mm-hmm. finishing this book getting it out on shelves it's just going to be so rewarding. And I feel like knowing that people wanted to read it helped me get through the worst part of having to work during a pandemic. So, mm-hmm. Well, that is a wonderful segue into an invitation. Every time I have a, uh, I have a writer on here, I love to give them space to read any Yay! work that, that they want or, or that they have. So I would love for you to introduce what you're going to read to us and um, wonderful. Okay. So this is, this is book one, uh, Blaze Rap Games that you'll be reading from. And so um, for, for our audience members who haven't, we've already been talking about the the book a little bit, but just tell us a little bit about um, maybe set the context for you know, the excerpt that you'll be reading. Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to be reading from the first chapter, the first five pages. And this is where our main character, Lana, is trying to get to her audition or her, to her tryout for the Blaze Wrath World Cup because Team Puerto Rico is missing one player and she wants to be this player. But her mother hates dragons with a passion. So she has to sneak around and essentially do all sorts of things to keep her secret from her mom. She knows her father would appreciate it because they both love the same sport. She grew up learning about dragons and the World Cup because of her dad. So she feels disconnected from her mother, not just because her mother is a white American woman, but also because 
she just doesn't get her passion for dragons and for Blazerath in general. Or specifically, I should say. <laughs> dragons in general, Blazerath specifically. So mm-hmm. the thing about these chapters, and this is a trend that continues in dragon blurring, is that they have epigraphs or like quotes mm-hmm. at the beginning that are taken mm-hmm. from texts or different sources within the world of the book. So these are not real. <laughs> My mother, yeah, which actually, is a technique that I love, by the way. Oh, I, I love, I love that technique. I love yeah. it as well. I was like really hoping to do this ev- eventually, and with some book that I wrote, and it just so happened mm-hmm. that it was this one. And I'm like, oh my god, it mm-hmm. makes sense because I was just mm-hmm. all of them are just answering questions that my editor had for me, but they were like, oh, mm-hmm. this is this might make the book too bloated, and it might be mm-hmm. difficult to integrate it with the action. And I'm like, well, they can be epigraphs. And they were like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I love that idea. So <laughs> so yes, whenever I'm ready or whenever we're ready. Yes, go oh, right ahead. Okay, here we go. All right, let me <clears throat> clear my throat. Here we go. Before the sport of Blaze Wrath was created, the question among witches and wizards remained the same. How can we keep our world a secret from humans who do not possess magic? This question did not have a long-term answer. In 1743, a dragon revealed itself to a regular for the first time in recorded history. The dragon had not intended to disrupt the status quo of the magical community. It had wished to ask that regular a different question. Are you ready to soar? Excerpt from Harleen Kurana's A History of Blazerath Around the World. And now we get into the chapter. Chapter 1. Dragons are better company than people. Not that I hate people. Some are okay. People can't fly, though. Not with wings strong enough to break the shell of a dragon's egg, which is as hard as steel. Wings that double as weapons. Witches and wizards use fancy metal wands and even fancier potions to get off the ground. So what? Dragons don't need wands or potions. They can just fly. Every two years, I watch them fly and fight for the Blaze Wrath World Cup. No other sporting event is the home of dragon riders and their huge, badass steeds hailing from the 16 countries chosen to compete. Other sports have players who run, but they don't have a runner, the only player without a dragon steed, who has to reach the top of a magically conjured mountain before they're blown away by a fireball or beaten to a pulp. After today, that could be me. For the billionth time, I sort through the stack of pages on my bed. Each one has a header that reads, Puerto Rico Runner Tryouts Application. I reread the first page. Lana Aurelia Torres, age 17. Application accepted. Appointment, July 16th, 2017 at 1 p.m. The Ritz-Carlton, Naples, Florida. All candidates must possess an official birth certificate from Puerto Rico. If attending tryouts in the United States, candidates are required to participate in their current state of residence and none other. Previous track and field experience is preferred but not mandatory. Training in martial arts is highly recommended. Today is July 16th. It's been four weeks since Blazerath tryouts officially began. Now they're finally coming to Florida. Puerto Rico's former runner, Brian Santana, got kicked off the team back in April. Getting fired is bad enough, 
but getting fired before your country plays for the first time ever, I would have cried. Thankfully, Brian's firing led to a broader search for his replacement, this time including Puerto Ricans living in the States. I'd switched from lamenting the loss of my country's runner to celebrating the chance to take his place. I don't have the highly recommended martial arts training unless watching YouTube videos and hitting imaginary rivals in my bedroom counts. I used to be on my middle school's track and field team, but my grades started slipping, so mom told me to focus on studying instead. Hopefully, I'm still fast enough to impress the International Blazerath Federation. There's a knock on my door. Lana, are you all set? Mom asks. I need help with the wrapping paper. Just a sec. Thank God the door is locked. The ruby red shirt and faded denim jeans I'll be wearing to hide my sporty clothes are still laid out next to my tryout documents. Okay, I'll be downstairs. Mom's footsteps echo across the hall. Even though the coast is clear, I rush to put on my shirt and jeans. My brown hair flops all over the place, but after a few frantic brushes, I wrangle it into a decent ponytail. I slip on my black and white Adidas sneakers, the ones I run in every morning. Mom's used to seeing me in them, so she won't find it suspicious I'm wearing them to celebrate my cousin Todd's birthday. Besides, we're taking him to a wand shop. No need to whip out the stilettos and fringe. I do a quick pirouette once I'm dressed. My meeting with the International Blazerath Federation is in a mere five hours. Today, I might become the new runner for Team Puerto Rico. I might get picked to rep my beautiful island, the island I haven't visited in 12 years. My smile fades. 12 years is too long to spend away from home, the place where I became myself. Before my Puerto Rican father and my white American mother divorced, we'd lived in the mountains of Calle. I would dash around our two-story house, its walls decorated in cracked coral paint, pretending to chase after dragons with Papi. He'd let me guide him through the endless greenery outside and the sloping pothole-ridden roads. Our neighbors would catch me with notepads and purple pens, jotting down clues that would take me to the dragon's lair. There hadn't been Sol de Noche dragons in Puerto Rico then. There was just a father and his only child, their feet running as fast as their imaginations. Our imaginations were never as exciting as Blaze Wrath. The cup takes place in a different country every two years. I was only four when Bobby let me watch my first tournament. He rearranged the furniture in our too hot living room, barefoot and belting 80s rock songs, the windows open and the ceiling fan blasting. He demonstrated in theatrical lunges what the runner has to do on the mountain and explained the offensive tactics each team's dragons could do. Two things engraved themselves in my heart. The way my father's face lit up whenever a match started and how I desperately craved to be part of the matches myself. Puerto Rico made me who I am, but Blazerath is the reason I was born. It's my purpose in a life without my island, a life without my father, who's currently living in Brazil. He doesn't know I'm trying out. If I get picked for Team Puerto Rico, it'll be the best surprise of his life. If nothing happens, he'll never know what a disappointment I was to us both. I grab the whisperer on my dresser. It looks like a red sports watch and fits my wrist like a charm. I press the silver adjust button. 
Samira, can you hear me? Affirmative. What's up? She says. Tupac's keep your head up blasts in the background. This whisperer has way better sound than my phone. Thanks to magic, it lets me communicate with anyone from anywhere. I'm not a witch, but being best friends with one has its perks. Just wanted to make sure the private wand-making tour is still happening, I say. Yup, I called the store again to confirm. I'll distract everyone while you sneak out for Blaze Rush tryouts. I've already left my car in the store parking lot, so I'll slip you my, slip you my keys. Then you act your booty off to convince your mom's sick, your mom you're sick, and can sit the private tour out. I'm smiling wide again. I owe you big time, Samira. Make it onto the team. Or you could let me transport to your house. You're not setting yourself on fire today. She gives me one of her Olympic gold medal winning sighs. That fire doesn't actually burn, Lana. Stop being extra. Also, I can get rid of it faster than before. Now I'm the one who sighs. Samira's a great BFF, but when it comes to being a great witch, she's still a work in progress. She's not magically strong enough to perform complex spells, including the transport charm, which moves anything from one place to another. Her original plan was to transport me straight to the Ritz-Carlton, but the last time she tried the spell, I was caged in blue flames for two hours. The flames didn't hurt me, but two hours? Come on. And since mom's an OBGYN, she's always on call from the hospital. Her car is off limits. Not that she'd ever lend it to me for this. We stick to my mother picking you up, I say. It's a lot safer. Fine, let's do it your boring way. I can picture her pouting in disappointment. See you in an hour, Captain. Again, I owe you. How about you admit Law & Order is the best show on television? Ugh, not this nonsense again. Goodbye, Samira. I tuck the tryout documents into my Wonder Woman backpack. It has this vintage-looking gold medal badge on it, which is shaped like the W on Diana's uniform. It makes me want to punch bad guys. Besides, Poppy bought it for me last Christmas, so it'll give me some luck. My phone's wallpaper fills the lock screen. It's a picture of Takeshi Endo, my favorite Blaze Wrath player. Two years ago, a 15-year-old Takeshi had been ready to represent Japan for the second time as his team's striker. This photo is from a shoot without Hikaru, his dragon steed. He's in a brightly lit studio wearing a simple white t-shirt and skinny jeans as black as his slicked back hair. One of his sleeves is rolled up, exposing a lean bicep. He's been missing for two years. No one has seen him since Hikaru's murder. Wish me luck, Takeshi. And that's it. <laughs> there, there we go. It's it's so I I love like hearing this. For me, it's oh, it's so the second cool. time. Um, and and what I what I love about this is that um, in general, what stood out to me about your first chapter here is how it. I don't know what it's called, but <laughs> like you're you're signposting oh, pretty much everything that right. happens in the book in the first chapter. Um, I just I, like, and I'm not going to say what is what because <laughs> people should read the book. Oh. Um, but but it's it's definitely um, I, I noticed it even well even like when I got to the end of the book and like was thinking about the beginning and I'm like, oh, that, was, <laughs> that was great. That's what we all should be doing. Oh, thank you very, very much. It was really interesting because I kept going back to that beginning while I was drafting mm -hmm. 
I wrote this book mm-hmm. in 12 months, like the first draft in 12 months, literally a year. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then revising it took a long time because I had no outline. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. wrote it from my heart and head. Well, mostly my heart, mm-hmm. no head was involved. Like absolutely yeah. no logical <laughs> thinking was involved in the mm-hmm. plotting of this book at first. And then as I reshaped it into something that was publishable, I felt like mm-hmm. that first chapter was an opportunity to integrate a lot because it is a new mm-hmm. world, even though it's our world. So mm-hmm. I'm happy that you say that because it stresses me out sometimes thinking about someone picking up that book and not knowing anything about the book and just reading it. And they're like, mm-hmm. what is going on here? <laughs> I think it works really well. And of course, also, I'm, I mean, I'm a fantasy reader. I read all kinds of things. So it's so like some level of world building is obviously you know, expected and, and anticipated in the first chapter. But wow, we have been at this for um, almost two hours. This might be my longest episode. <laughs> That's okay. Um, it's Puerto Rican rights. <laughs> it, listen, we're about to have another conversation about how it takes three hours to leave a party. Oh, yes. Because- oh, yes. I had this. I talked about this in a, in a live stream with a Mexican American author, Johnny Garcavilla. Mm-hmm. Everyone should read their mm-hmm. book, 1500 Miles from the mm-hmm. Sun. Um, but yes, we were talking about like, oh, I, I was trying to end the stream and they kept talking and I was like, <laughs> I love talking to Johnny, but I was like, when we're, and now we're ending the stream. <laughs> it took us a long time. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. No, I, I was there for that oh, stream yes, and I was, yes, yes. I was just laughing because <laughs> it was really Latinx. Like we were really being our stereotypical We didn't even selves. get into Oh my gosh, we didn't even get into the joke about like the Latin experience yeah. when we were talking about Catholicism and Gregorian chants before. <laughs> right. I, I didn't even get to make that joke in this podcast, but now I just did, except, you know, really, really poorly. Yes, um, yes absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. and Encuentros Latinx is all about the Latin experience, yeah. so you can expect, which is, it's even funnier because in, in a UCC context, United Church of Christ, it's a very uh, mainline Protestant denomination. Right. So a lot of churches actually are like all about the, all about those hymns. <laughs> yes, yes. um, They're all and, about them. Uh, which, I mean, I, I love a lot of hymns and Gregorian chants legitimately are like really. They're cool. amazing. Um, I love them. But... <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're super, they can be very chilling, but also very mm-hmm. soothing. So it just depends on mm-hmm. what you're listening to and, and how you feel <laughs> before you listen yeah. to it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, where can people keep up with you and your work? Well, right now I am mostly, I have Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and I have my own YouTube channel, as Taylor mentioned. My Twitter and Instagram handles are both at Amparo underscore Ortiz. My TikTok is at Amparo underscore Ortiz underscore author. And my YouTube channel, you can just find me as Amparo Ortiz. And I haven't been posting regularly on my channel. I'm taking the summer off from streaming as well because I really want to finish this book that I'm reading right now. Mm -hmm. But I hope to have a video soon with some details about something. And you can expect that like no later than August, like mid-August. Cool. So I'm excited about that. And then streaming will, will resume in October just in time for Dragon Bullet Ring to hit shelves. Cool. Which... Remind us of the date again. October 12th. October. Yes. It's Great. a Tuesday. So. Great. Tuesday. Yes. Yeah. As all, as all traditional publishing yes, is. Yes, yes, yes. On a Tuesday. It's on a Tuesday. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. You can, you can pre-order it now. Oh, yes. Folks. It is available. Um, pretty much. Yeah. And yeah. keep those receipts if you do pre-order. Uh, I haven't announced my giveaway campaign yet, but there will be one. And signed copies will be available from my local indie, but we haven't set that up yet. So I'm like speaking before... <laughs> 
we have confirmation from them, but yeah, I'm, right. I'm assuming we will get those to you soon. Yeah. Very, Yay. very cool. Well, Amparo, thank you so, so thank much you, for Taylor. this conversation. <laughs> it's awesome to finally meet you, e-meet you, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. We, I, I've been uh, trolling Amparo's mentions on her YouTube channel. For, it's not uh, trolling if it's true. So, well, yes, 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 it is. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe one day, you know, we'll just cat person each other Imagine. and it'll be funny Imagine. instead of yeah. awkward. Instead of know? being wildly <laughs> uncomfortable for the other person. Oh my gosh. I'm so embarrassed <laughs> for them. But yeah. <laughs> well, that's a great way Yay! to. Um... <laughs> Embarrassment and shame. That's a great way to wrap up the, wrap the podcast. Yay. Um, again once again thank you thank you so much and uh i i imagine that you know maybe for a lot of people this might be the first time you're encountering me or encountering encuentros latinx so uh this is a monthly podcast where i talk about or talk with and also about <laughs> but uh, just a different latinx person each month and we talk about spirituality religion you know whatever work that they're doing in the world it's always a unique conversation uh, because every individual is unique and special. So check us out. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, um, other places that <laughs> podcast exists. Yes. And uh, leave reviews and ratings. Um, and, you know, through that, you can find my own social media and author stuff. But, uh, yeah, thanks yes. for tuning in. Thanks again on Bottle. And, uh Read about some Latinx dragons in a couple yes. months. Yes. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. On behalf of Encuentros Latinx, we hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.